six days and six nights, the winds blew. Torrent and tempest and flood overwhelmed the world. Tempest and floods raged like warring hosts. When the seventh day dawned, the storm from the south subsided. The sea grew calm, the flood was stilled. I looked at the face of the world, and there was silence. All mankind was turned to clay. The surface of the sea stretched as flat as a rooftop. These are the words written more than 3,200 years ago, credited to Ut Napishitam, as he spoke them to the epic hero Gilgamesh after he reached the edge of the world in search of the solution to death. Many, and not just including historians and archaeologists, know of the fact that the flood myth occurs in multiple mythologies across the world, many times in civilizations that had zero contact with each other, not since the first evolved humans left Africa, or so the experts say. As for the epic, it originated in the world's oldest known civilization, Sumeria, later being translated to Akkadian, which the surviving copy was discovered in the 19th century. Many also know of the Ice Age, a mass freezing of the Earth's oceans, which gave many opportunities for humans to traverse across the vast, empty world. This was 10,000 years ago, long before civilizations appeared. In Plato's dialogue, Timaeus, Critias, an Athenian statesman, tells us of how a man named Solon ventured to Egypt in which he is told by the learned of a mythical civilization in the ancient, ancient past. For these histories tell of a mighty power which unprovoked made an expedition against the whole of Europe and Asia, and to which your city put an end. This power came forth out of the Atlantic Ocean, for in those days the Atlantic was navigable, and there was an island situated in front of the straits, which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. The island was larger than Libya and Asia put together, and was the way to other islands, and from these you might pass to the whole of the opposite continent, which surrounded the true ocean. For this sea, which is within the Straits of Heracles, is only a harbor, having a narrow entrance, but that utter is a real sea, and the surrounding land may be most truly called the boundless continent. Many scholars dismiss this as merely a literary device Plato created to tell of his ideal state he talks of in Republic, or some slightly concede only to state Atlantis was a small city-state in the Mediterranean, which collapsed into the sea due to volcanic eruption. But let's not focus on Atlantis, which has become synonymous with many false ideas and works of fiction. Let's focus on the words around it. For starters, it is clearly stated Atlantis is in the Atlantic and not the Mediterranean, and that it was rather large. Critias tells us this island was the way to other islands, which lead to an opposite continent. He also tells us this land surrounded the true ocean, may be called the boundless continent. Putting these things together, this should be letting off light bulbs in the heads of anyone who has ever looked at a map. But before getting ahead of ourselves, let us discuss Critias's source of information, Egypt. In contemporary mainstream scholarship, the Sphinx is regarded as being more than 5,500 years old, built during the reign of Khafre, son of the famous pyramid builder Khufu. One thing everyone is in agreement on, the Sphinx, both in aesthetics and architecture, is unlike anything else in the land of Kemet. In the 1990s, Dr. Robert Schock, a geologist, was sent to photograph of a mysterious wall of rocks and asked what was the cause of the natural damage done to them. Dr. Schock, in response to West, told him that it was water erosion. West revealed that this water eroded structure was the Great Sphinx. How could it be that in a place that had not rained in centuries this was so? Shock went on to investigate the Sphinx in person, at first coming up with an estimate of 5,000 to 7,000 years, and eventually landing on a groundbreaking conclusion. The Sphinx was constructed at least 10,000 years ago, around the end of the last ice age. Despite the Fury's popularity in the geologist community, the Fury was largely rejected by many in the field of Egyptology, especially by Dr. Zahi Hawaz, an archaeologist tied to the Egyptian government. Hawaz was angry, claiming it to be a conspiracy to take the country's history away from the Egyptian people. But how could a discovery that lengthened the history of mighty Egypt possibly be something not to be celebrated? 
Perhaps something or some other force was at play. In 1996, by accident, a skull was discovered at the Columbia River, exposed from erosion. The skull was examined by anthropologist James Chatters, who, by 1998, reconstructed from the discovered remains of face, which much of the public thought resembled the actor Patrick Stewart. The remains were not of a murder victim from decades ago, or even a victor of conflict between colonizers and natives hundreds of years ago. They were around 9,000 years old in age. This led to much controversy, eventually resulting in the scientific community given to pressure from tribal groups and public officials, claiming it to be a Native American skull, and thus the bones were taken from the museum and returned to a modern-day Native American tribal organizations, only to be buried in the ground. Just as with Robert Schock's discovery, non-governmental as well as governmental organizations swooped in with lacking rebuttals to shut down the revisionists. Myths of a worldwide flood from what is considered one of the earliest civilizations. Accounts describing land masses like the Caribbean and North America handed down from men who supposedly knew nothing else but of the deserts of Egypt. Water erosion to sculptures situated in a land that had not seen rain in millennia, geologically lining up with the end of the Ice Age. Bones that looked like Europeans found in the Northwest United States. All of this evidence, both ancient and new, showing signs of a global civilization, perhaps of the same scale in geography and connectivity as ours now, existed before the Ice Age. The academia pays it no attention. Why is this? Is it because it would force them to revise years of scholarship and they are afraid of the cost or the effort to accomplish such a task? Is it because such theories make them look foolish? Or is it because of something more nefarious? But why would knowledge of events of the most ancient past pose a threat to the establishment? Hesiod, a Greek poet of around the time of Homer, tells us in his works and days, an ancient piece of literature, like an almanac and a self-help book, composed for his brother. In it, he tells of four different races of man who existed consecutively before the present iteration of humanity. Golden, silver, bronze, the heroic, and on top of, and the current race, the race of iron. During the Golden Age, Kronos, or as the Romans called him, Saturn, ruled the earth and life was like heaven. Then came the silver, in which the population of men were infantile, living with their mothers for a long time till they grew up and quickly went to fight and kill their peers as well as be killed. Then came the most ignoble race, the bronze, who, like the silver, were eager to go out at each other's throats, though even quicker in which they wiped themselves out. It was a time without honor, but then a resurgence, the time in which the heroes of the Trojan War and characters such as Hercules and Perseus lived, an age of war yet of noble men, who, though dying, achieved the highest of honors, stowed by Zeus to no other generation, eternity in the Isle of the Blessed, the greatest paradise in the afterlife. The bard himself notes he lives in the Iron Age, a time of great menial struggle, and prophesizes this age of man will come to an end when all religion and morality are abandoned, and so the gods will leave behind ills, impossible to overcome upon the face of the earth. Since the French Revolution, the world is dangerously arching more and more towards the setting of Hesiod's vision, as secularism creates a vacuum perfect for titanic energies created by powerful groups, individuals, and even our own demons to act. Was the Enlightenment not from the light within the nobleness of humanity's soul, but instead the light of the morning star? Was the Enlightenment a Luciferian awakening? Did the light of this black flame break? Or has it nearly broken humanity's connection to the gods? The dichotomy between creationism and evolutionism is a strange one. Creationism tells of the world being created in a series of steps and frames human history within the boundaries of creation and judgment, a very linear map of time. Evolution frames humanity's beginnings with the emergence of modern man from the common ancestor, the creation of the first villages, then city-states, and finally the present industrial age, and it frames the origin of the cosmos with an event in the distant past known as the Big Bang. But yet even mainstream scientists admit older and older fossils have been found, pushing back the limit of civilization's true beginnings.
An enemy ecologist will note to you how nature moves in cycles, the seasons, the life cycles of animals, the comets passing Earth, etc., etc., etc. If science regards man as an animal, then is not history an element of the animal world, and like other elements of it, moves in cycles? And what about the creation and destruction of the universe itself? Aristotle, in his metaphysics, regards the universe as having an infinite past, something that angered Christians in the Middle Ages as seeing it against the Bible, and something modern scientists such as Hawking dismiss as silly. But even their own models allow for an eternal passing away. The universe came from a singularity and it will return to singularity, the Big Crunch model tells us. In the Book of the Dead, a spell tells of the original god, Atum, from which forth all the generations of God sprang and so the world and all in it. In this spell, it tells of Atum as the beginning and the end. As Atum once created the universe, so someday he will collapse it back in on itself and restart the cycle of creation. Veiled under much symbolism, perhaps, the ancient Egyptians had a better understanding of the nature of the cosmos than we do. And that is why malicious forces wish to cover up the proof of the ancient, ancient past. Because it reveals something deeper behind the mythological and occult systems of the ancient world many sadly regard as nonsensical today. The current order of the universe, and even just society, is not and can never be the eternal one. Someday it can be usurped, and it probably will. The ideas and morals of today were not those of the past, and thus we should not think they will be of the future. This idea is best expounded in not a work of literature, but that of the visual medium. American painter Thomas Cole's The Course of Empire, a series of four monumental paintings showing the progression of an empire, from primitive origins to pastoral life, the might and glory of empire, to its destruction and return to a primitive landscape, except this time scattered by human ruins, the womb of the land waiting to be fertilized by the vision of great men again. Cole was a member of the Hudson River School, a romantic art movement focused on the beauty of America's landscapes, particularly the Hudson Valley. Many of the artists, such as Asher B. Durand, often state a feeling of an almost pantheistic connection to the natural world. At this time, many of the New Nation's residents had come from, or had family, that had come from Europe not long ago. How could these men feel such a connection to a land so far from their origins, and a land that would not be fully conquered and explored till decades later? Was it because of the collective consciousness of their ancestors? had known that land long ago? Was it just a not just a colonization, but a spiritual homecoming? Did the raindrop fall from the warm darkness of the ancestral sphere into the subconsciousness of the first Americans, launching the pioneers and the cowboys on their journey across the western U.S.? Was this conquest of a continent the last of the nation's movements into the unknown, or was it a precursor to a greater future? As long after the Golden Age, the heroic age came, and a time of divinity was on the earth again. Even if it was at the cost of extreme sacrifice and will, so too will or can come another heroic age, an age in which centuries from now, poets will write of, and so will people read of several thousand years later after said poets. Thank you for listening to The Daily Chomp. Make sure to listen tomorrow for Ethan Dusko. I'm your host, Reading Key.